What happens when you take a redneck fishing guide and pair him up with a master beekeeper? Well, we're about to find out. Join our host Ken Milam and John Swan as they help you brave the sting of beekeeping to reap the sweet rewards. This is The Hive Jive. <laughs> hey, looky there. Mm. Now it's recording. No, how do I sound now? Same thing? Yeah. Uh, I mean, yeah, it's it's the same as, as it was. Yeah. Um, yeah. Okay. Man, that sucks. <laughs> Take three, everybody. Um, you, were get, you were getting on a pretty good rant. <laughs> I, was, I was doing good. Uh, yeah, I thought so. So, yeah. Um, for those individuals that don't like small talk, please feel free to fast forward. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right. So here's the deal. I am going to talk about microphones not working and things like that. We've been having some technical issues this morning. We did yep. not, we, we were not able to get our audio system, the, the online one through Podbean when we do our live recordings. We were not able to get the signal to stay strong because we suspect it may have something to do with the internet out there, um, out by Lake Buchanan at the moment is not cooperating or the, or the cell no, signal. Not. We're not sure. Um, don't know what it is. Yeah. So then we had to switch over to, this is literally a, a phone call and mm-hmm. is. Ken's going to sound a little bit different because he is, he is actually on his cell phone. Just like when you call into the radio station kind of thing, he, he is calling in remotely. Um, so we're not going to sound equal on the, the sound there. So we apologize for that in advance, but it's, uh, it's this or no show at all at this point. Um, so, so this is what we got to work with. And we just did an amazing like 35 minute segment and some dumb, dumb forgot to hit record. <laughs> yeah. So now we're on take three. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we're good. We're doing good. You were just uh, practicing. Yeah, it was my warm up. Um, you, you were on a good rant too. I mean, that was good. Yeah. So now we now we got to see if I can remember all that. Whew, man. All right. Well, um, so we can put things in a proper order at least for for this one. Um, on our last main segment episode, we kind of left everybody hanging with whether or not all of the colonies were alive and if they survived. Whoa! Stop! 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 Good morning, family. You're tuned in to the Hive Jive podcast. Now John Swan is going to tell you all about it. And this is Ken Milam. See you in a bit. Actually, I was going to make you talk. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, yeah. So, so we were able to get out there. Ken and Max went and checked all of their colonies. And yes, we did. what is your report, sir? Everybody is healthy and happy. Healthy and happy. Healthy and happy, and I didn't even get stung. I thought I did good. That is, yeah, that is that is pretty good. Not getting <laughs> no, stung. It really is. Uh huh. So I checked all of mine, and I had the one small top bar nuke that did perish due to the cold, and that's mm-hmm. the one that we had posted originally on social media, showing uh, kind of what it looks like when that goes through and occurs. And so we did lose that one small top bar nuke. And we had one Langstroth colony that absconded sometime prior to the actual cold front hitting. And that was it. So out of all the colonies, there was only two technical losses. And only one of those was due to the inclement weather. So that's pretty good. That, that is way better than what I was thinking we were going to find. 
Um, I have heard from some other beekeepers, uh, Tara Chapman and Brandon Farenkamp, and they are at the moment finding about 20% losses from the storm wow. is what they're seeing. Wow. And on Tara's specifically, she is expecting those numbers to potentially go up because there are some smaller colonies that did survive, but may not survive the next few weeks. So it's kind of still touch and go for various different reasons out there. But we are happy to report that between Ken and Max and I, all of the colonies that mm -hmm. we have, um, they are all in good shape and, and they're good to go. That one small little nuke was not necessarily a shock uh, that it did not make it. It wasn't insulated. It only had five very small little comb inside there. Um, they had plenty of plenty of food, but just not enough bees to keep them warm and not enough insulation to hold that heat in. And and they succumbed to the cold uh, with the food stores just a couple of cells away from them, which was the sad part. But but that is, unfortunately, sometimes how it goes. Um, but yeah, and uh, we are... <laughs> We are on a warming streak at the moment. So yep. from the best that we can tell on the long-range forecast for Central Texas specifically, we're done with winter. There does not seem to be any more random cold snaps that are going to hit us in March, so we should be good to go. Our average temperatures are now back up into the 60s. Um, we did have one more little cold front that came through the tail end of last week, dropped it down to about 56, but... We are warming back up, and it should stay in the 60s and 70s, and so we're good. That kind of gives us a green light for a lot of things, and that's that's perfect. Um, so that means that it's time to start thinking about spring prep and getting your colonies ready for spring. And right now, coming out of winter, getting started for that type of concept is a very tricky touch-and-go kind of scenario you're kind of stuck in the middle in this gray area. And there's a lot of different factors that could play into what should or should not necessarily be done. So you and I, you know, like for the third time over here, Ken, <laughs> we were talking about <laughs> like uh, the last episode or the bonus episode, I guess, last week, we <laughs> talked about transferring one of your colonies into a long lang, taking right. a langstroth <laughs> and putting it into a long lang. And when we did that, I was kind of going through and telling you, how how the comb should go in there based on what's in yep. the comb. And right. we talked about if your entrance, we're going to say for this scenario, your entrance is on the left-hand side when you're facing the, the horizontal style hive. And this mm -hmm. can be a top bar, this can be a long laying, you know, whatever. So the entrance is on the left-hand side. And when you're taking apart that Langstroth and you're transferring it into the long laying, I told you to take any frames of solid capped food and put those in first at the mm -hmm. far left by the entrance. Mm -hmm. Then you're going to follow that up with any frames of brood and pollen, mm -hmm. and those are going to go next. Any empty frames that are left over that have drawn comb on them will go after the brood, so the brood can continue to expand into those frames. And then any undrawn foundation frames that remain go after that drawn comb and fill up the rest of the colony. Now, the reason that we're reiterating this is because if you do have a horizontal style hive, the very first thing you should do, and we did talk about this in season two, there's an entire episode dedicated to this, so feel free to go check that out. Um, but the first thing that you want to do is you want to rotate and move your comb so that you take 
we're going to say in a, in a horizontal or, or Langstroth style hive, it's, I don't know, we'll say four foot long. And mm-hmm. let's say that your colony in this hypothetical scenario, starting at the left, only takes up about half of the hive. It only goes about two and a half foot across that hive. Mm-hmm. Out at the end of that colony, right about the middle section of the hive where the comb stops, let's say that they still have capped honey there. And there's several comb of solid capped honey from top to bottom at the tail end of that. And then beyond it is the empty void where new comb could be built. If you leave it that way, those walls of solid honey are going to encapsulate the brood nest and restrict it to just the size of what's on the other side of that wall from the middle over to the left. And it's not going to allow the brood nest to expand into any new comb that your bees draw from that center point over to the right. So by taking that honey out and doing the exact same thing that I was going through and talking to Ken about how to put in the new colony, if you take that those solid frames or solid bars of capped honey out of the middle and you move them over to the very front, you put them in the very front left corner of our hypothetical hive where the entrance is on the left, you put those in there, then you have your brood, then you have any empty comb, and then you have your empty bars or empty frames that take up the rest of the hive. And the point of moving them is so that it's still close to the brood, they can still get to it, and they can still access the food, but it's no longer creating a barrier. So as the brood nest expands, there's nothing stopping the queen from expanding over into the empty comb. And then as the bees are building new comb out there in the void, the brood nest can continue to expand directly into that new comb and you will be able to have a much larger, more robust colony because the queen wasn't limited to having just a small little section of of open comb to work with because she was trapped on the other side of this solid wall of honey. So that's your first step from a horizontal perspective. Okay. One thing uh, on my long line I'm building. I got to want to move that double deep into it. So I'm moving 16 deep frames into it. Tell me what size hole I should have. I only got a three quarter inch hole. Is that a big enough? That's perfectly fine. Okay. Okay. So one of the things that, and, and I did, I did get some footage of this. I think I put it on my wicked bee apiary, um, Instagram, but when you go through and you give them like lots of options, there, you're also giving lots of opportunity for predators to find other ways into your colony. You're mm-hmm. giving lots of opportunity for drafts to go through and, you know, pull the air out and cool it off or let heat escape. And you're pre- creating more area that has to be guarded, which means more bees dedicated to just that task. So if you have yep. between like an inch diameter or smaller hole, Mm-hmm. that's fine. Okay. What I do is I, I make, I want to say it's an inch to an inch and a half. Might even be a two inch hole that I put behind mm-hmm. my discs. Mm-hmm. And then I use the disc to slim that down so that mm-hmm. when the colony is strong and robust and I want the full opening, then I can create that by moving the disc. But when the colony is small, I have half of it covered up with vent and half of it covered up with, mm-hmm. like, the, the queen exclude, so the bees can get in and yeah. out, but they, they don't have as much space to guard. Um, but no, that's not that's not an issue at all. 
The bees really like a small opening, something that can be easily guarded. And if it's too big or too long, they're either going to cover it with propolis to seal it down, or they're going to have to use more bees to guard that area. Did Max send you a video, a picture of, he had a swarm trap over in Stonewall at his uh, wife's place. And this a swarm moved in. He didn't know it. I guess he said they moved in there somewhere around late September or October. A late swarm moved in. And they had propolized the hole. I think he had an inch, maybe an inch and a quarter hole. They propolized the hole to just a very small slit that the bees could come in and out. They propolized the hole shut. Yes. I saw that. Did you just hear the phone go dink? Yeah. <laughs> uh-uh. uh, um, there we go. I was trying to turn the, the sound off on the phone because it, it occurred to me I was getting, Natalie is sending text messages um, <laughs> for her portion that's coming up here in a minute, and I could hear it, and I was like, I wonder if it's recording that. <laughs> no, I didn't hear it. Uh, that's sort of like my radio shows all the time. You can hear me. I'm in there getting text, or sometimes my phone will ring. I always forget to put it on you. Oh, yeah, well. yeah. Makes, for, makes it fun. For anybody who has been with <laughs> us for the long haul and remembers the first season of the show, um, there were lots of curse splashes and turkey calls that would happen in the middle of recording. Oh, yeah. That was your phone going off. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, uh, yes, he did uh, He did send me that picture, and, and there was, you could see where they had built the propolis and narrowed the hole down yep. smaller. Um, and I had a video that I put out there on a... A spool, a huge wooden spool that has, oh gosh, I don't know, the the circumference of the opening of that sucker is four or five inches across for where the mm-hmm. bar would go through the middle of it. And mm-hmm. the bees had taken that whole thing and filled it all the way down to just one hole, barely big enough for a single bee to come and go out of. Wow. Wow. So, so yeah, they will, they will fix things if they have to for certain. They will go through and... Yeah, they'll they'll convert it and, and shrink it down as needed. That little top bar that passed away, the little uh, small top bar nuke that died from the cold, mm-hmm. it mm-hmm. had done the same thing. It had propolis. Even though it had the vent over it, there was still air able to come through, and so they propolized it off. But the interesting thing was that propolis was half an inch thick. Wow. Like it was a big old solid wall that they had built up inside there, so that was kind of crazy. Um, they're trying to get warm. Yeah, they were, they were definitely trying to keep it as contained as Mm -hmm. possible, but it still, unfortunately for them was not enough. So, Mm -hmm. um, now other things to think about is whether or not your colonies need to be fed and every colony is different. So when I was talking to you originally, um, I, I was telling you that I have the one top bar that I had taken some video and some pictures of. And it is solid comb from left all the way to right. The whole thing is full of comb. And Mm -hmm. the last eight bars or combs Mm -hmm. are solid capped honey from top to bottom. So they have eight comb of solid capped honey left in that colony after this massive freeze, after the whole winter, everything. So they've got a ton of food. Three hives over, another top bar which also has comb from one end of the colony clear to the other, has zero capped food stores. <laughs> so 
every colony is different and you're going to have to base these decisions on what each colony needs. But here's where all of the confusion and contradiction and all that other stuff starts coming into play, which is very prevalent in beekeeping. There's always a contradiction. Right now, coming out of winter, you're in a dearth. For us, we normally would already have blue bonnets coming up at this point, and we had them, and Ken even had a picture mm-hmm. of like one his first bloom that he had. Yep. Well, the freeze was bad enough, it killed them all back down to the ground. So the lower levels of the plant are still alive and still green, but the, the plant's going to have to do a lot of regrowth before it's able to then send up new blooms. We do have some dandelions starting to pop up, and mm-hmm. the henbit has started blooming. Everything else is dead, and mm-hmm. that's not normal for us. But in other areas up further north, that's like right now, there's still snow on the ground. There's not going to be anything blooming. Your colonies are still going to be in their hibernative state, you know, clustered and staying warm and trying to conserve heat and food and energy for the next month, maybe longer, depending on how your season goes. So in that dearth period, if you go through and you feed a single colony, that single colony, if you accidentally spill any of the food, and or if that colony is weak and cannot guard the food and it's got a big gaping opening, you can absolutely incite robbing just as easily right now as you would have in the middle of the summer heat wave in the summer dearth. So robbing can be a very, very tricky thing right now at this time of year. So you got to be careful with that. The other thing you need to be careful with is the temperature and whether or not you can start feeding a liquid food is still completely based on your average temperatures. So coming out of winter into spring, you want to wait until the temperature is average daytime temps above 60 degrees Fahrenheit, and then you can start considering that. If they're not, if they're still below 60 degrees Fahrenheit, if your average daytime temps are 43 degrees Fahrenheit, you cannot, or well, you can, but you should not be feeding a liquid food. That's kind of the golden rule of how liquid should be done. You don't want to add too much moisture in there. You don't want to create ice, basically, or icicles or giant ice block that's going to help cool the hive down because that water then freezes. So you, and you don't want the extra humidity in there that's going to create cold rain droplets that are going to fall down on top of the cluster and chill them and, and cause problems either. So if you're still in one of those northern climates where the temperatures are still cold, then any emergency food stores need to be a solid food. They need to be the candy board. They need to be a sugar brick. They need to be a sugar camp. They need to be a slurry, whatever that is a moistened type of solid sugar. So the bees have the carbohydrates. They have the energy needed if they need it, but it's not something that's a liquid that's going to add too much moisture to the colony, and it's not going to stimulate them artificially to start raising brood too quickly. Now, on that note, that's where it flips back over to those of us down here in the south. Our average daytime temperatures are now above 60 degrees Fahrenheit, so we can start feeding a liquid syrup. However, the next question is, should we? Just because we can doesn't mean we should, and that's a big thing sometimes in beekeeping. Just because we can doesn't mean we should. We have this weird little window here where our colonies prior to this massive cold front coming through were already raising brood on their own accord. 
if you were artificially stimulating them, they would have been raising even more brood. What happens when a colony has a lot of brood, has a lot of food, and thinks that there's an incoming nectar source? They switch over into a swarm mode. And they're going to decide, we have met all the criteria. We're running out of space. We've got a lot of bee population. There's an incoming food source, so it must be time to swarm. And if your colony starts that process right now, that is a bad sign for your colony, especially the one that gets left over. If you're going through and you do a split, the colony that has the mated queen is going to do okay, and especially if you continue feeding them because then they can draw out new comb and they can expand. But the colony that got left behind, unless by a miracle of a chance you have found a queen breeder that can ship you a mated queen right now, which is very much unheard of, mm-hmm. then you have to go on nature. And what's going to happen is that new queen, is they can absolutely raise her, She'll come out of there. She may be nice and fat and plump and healthy, but there is Mm -hmm. no drone congregation areas for her to go to to be fully mated to come back and continue heading that colony, which means that colony is potentially then doomed because she could turn into a drone layer and, you know, the cycle could go downhill very quickly. Or you might get lucky and she might mate with a drone or two and come back and have enough genetic material to lay one or two cycles of brood, which may just barely save your rear, because it might just get you long enough into the time frame where there truly are then drones where a queen could go out and get mated. Um, But that's kind of the tricky situation you're in. So if you do start feeding a liquid syrup, if it's still too early, you might consider feeding a two-to-one syrup, because it's a thicker concentration. It doesn't mimic the nectar flow because it is thicker. It's something that they can immediately take and just basically store. They're not going through and trying to dehydrate it as much and do all this other stuff to it. So if you feed the two-to-one solution, that's kind of the better stopgap coming out of the solid food and then into the liquid food. If you switch over, though, and you start feeding immediately a one-to-one solution instead of the two-to-one solution, and you've got that thinner syrup in there that does stimulate brood rearing and it stimulates comb building and it stimulates the colony to think there are natural food sources available out there in nature. So that's the other little trick that you got to be careful about. Now, the last piece of that that we touched on was the, the aspect of the drones and whether or not you have drones available in your area. The only way really you can tell is by looking at your colonies and then trying to do an assumption which could very easily get everybody into trouble, but that's that's the only thing you've got to work with. So if you have, I think the example was five colonies, and one of those colonies has tons of drone brood and a good amount of adult drones in the colony, but the other four colonies don't have any drones at all, you should assume that that one colony is a fluke and that the other colonies in your apiary, the other four that don't have the drones, are probably a better representation of what's going on in the world around you and in nature. There could be, if you're in town, what you're doing is you're assuming that the other managed colonies in the area are probably in that same realm. If you're not and you're isolated out in an urban or country-type environment and there aren't any other beekeepers that you know of, then what you're relying on is the feral colonies and their drone populations. So for a drone to be old enough to mate, 
you have to go through the full 24 to 26 day cycle for them to emerge as an adult bee. And then they mm-hmm. need an additional two weeks as an adult bee hanging out inside that colony, eating, going out and practicing flying and all that other stuff, two solid weeks as an adult bee before they ever start to become sexually mature. So just because you see drones in your colony, if all of those drones just hatched yesterday and you're like, oh, I can send my queens out to get mated. Well, technically you can't. There's still a two or three week period in there before it's really a good time to do that. And if it's only the one colony and your other colonies don't represent that, then there's probably not enough drones out there to flood a drone congregation area that are sexually mature that can go through and mate with your queen. So you're going to have to keep that stuff in mind. That's where some of that B math comes in and you kind of have to do a backwards iteration of like, all right, here's my timeline in reverse. And this is the soonest that I can start raising a queen based on when the drones are going to be sexually mature. So if those four colonies or five colonies at your apiary, all of them have different stages of drones in there. And you know that at least three of those colonies, the drones are reaching a point where they're going to be two or three weeks old in X amount of time. That's when you can then turn around and say, okay, I know that I need three more weeks from today before they're sexually mature. So I could start doing my splits that I'm going to let them raise a natural queen, or I can start doing my grafting and things along those lines. That's when you base that on, not necessarily on the calendar, but on the colonies themselves. And so when you go through and you start that process, then you know, well, if I raise a queen and it takes a queen 16 days to emerge, and then it takes her five to seven more days to become sexually mature for her to go out on her nuptial flights. So you take that math and you add that into the time frame of, okay, well, this colony's got capped drones, this colony's got capped drones, this colony's got capped drones. I know I've got two more weeks before they emerge, and then they've got two more weeks before they can go out and be sexually mature. So you've got a month over there and you got a month over here. You can start to kind of gauge that to when those drones start emerging as newborn baby adult bees, then you can potentially, if again, it is the majority of your colonies are showing the same representation of drones, then you could start thinking about your splits and thinking about raising queens and getting that process started. So when she does emerge and go on a nuptial flight, there are enough drones out there for her to successfully mate with. That was a lot. Okay. Yeah. Well, no, I'm good. I've, I've pretty much got it memorized now. <laughs> now, tell me this. Uh, on your, you have the two top bars. One of them has eight frames of honey left. The other one, three, bar, three just three bars down, or three spots down, is pretty much empty. Do you know if the one has eight bars of honey left? Was that a feral colony of bees? Or was the one that used all their resources up, was that a feral colony? Did you requeen either one? Did you requeen both? Did you requeen them with uh, a Corniolan? Or did you requeen them with an Italian? I'm just, I was just interested in that. The colony that has the eight solid comb of honey is a feral colony mm-hmm. that um, it is the swarm that chose and moved into that box on their own accord and filled it up very, very quickly with comb and honey. And we did a full honey harvest out of that box. I think I took almost 15 comb out of there 
and harvested it. Good gosh. And they still rebuilt all of that comb and filled it all with honey. And then coming out of winter, still have eight solid combs of honey left over in there. But wow. I say that's a feral colony. But that is a swarm that moved into a hive on the apiary, which very well could be, it could, there are a couple of feral colonies out there on the 40 acres that are in some random things Mm -hmm. that have been left out there. Um, Mm -hmm. And some of those I've just left alone. I kind of go through and I monitor them and I I use them as a guesstimate on what's going on in the world when it's untouched by man kind of thing, right? Mm -hmm. But... I can't guarantee you if that swarm that moved in there came from one of my managed colonies or came from one of those feral colonies, but it is not a colony that I purposely put in there. They chose it on their own and it is not a colony that I have requeened since they moved in. The colony that ate all their food is a managed colony and it is one that it has been requeened. In fact, I think it got requeened three times because the first two just didn't take. Um, they never really got up and got going, and I kept seeing signs of emergency cells. And so the third time, they finally got requeened, and I don't remember with what. I don't know what the lineage of that was. It was because that was one of the queens that we – I brought you that queen because you had talked about that. A colony back, uh, oh, hell, that's been back in the early summer, maybe l- early, late spring. Uh, and uh, Max had ordered some and some queens, and I think he ordered you a queen. And that would have been... <sighs> yeah, I don't see? Know if it was a carny. It was a long time ago. I know. I don't know if that was a carny or if it was Italian. Because we bought we bought Italians, we bought carnies, and we've bought uh, oh, what's the other B? A scat, the scat, scat, scrat, scrat, scrat. Yeah, so I'm not sure. Yeah, but, I don't. Uh, I don't know either. I don't think. I don't think it's an Italian. That doesn't mean that it doesn't mm-hmm. have Italian genetics in there, though, because mm-hmm. you know they they all kind of get mixed up and mixed around and stuff. But I don't think it was that. But I don't know what it is. I know, so I've only got one Scrats queen, and she's out on the back part of the apiary. She's still alive and well and healthy. Mm-hmm. And uh, I've got the majority of all my stuff out there is Russian Carniolan or second gen. Um, I did order some Italians, but they were for clients. And so none of those are actually in any of the, the colonies out there at the apiary. <laughs> Um, I think that was the South Texas uh, carny. It might have been that New think, World Carniolan from South was. Texas. I think it was. I, we bought some uh, because we just wanted to try them, and uh, we bought some. And that what it just makes me remember because it came in a queen hotel, and I brought you the hotel, and it had one queen left, and I think that might have been a New World Carniolan. Yeah. Pretty sure. I'm thinking pretty sure it was. Yeah, so... Who knows? Um, I don't know. But, you know, now now you've got options and choices and, and a few things to think about, at least this week. And on that note, you know, while we're, we're talking about these options and stuff, uh, it is time for us to go all natural and uh, get a little bit of a natural perspective. Oh, let's talk to Natalie. It's time to be mindful and take a more bee-centric look inside our hives. Welcome to the Natural Beekeeping Corner 
with her host, Natalie B. Hello, family. Bonjour. And welcome to the first official Natural Beekeeping Corner on the Hive Jive. I'm your host, Natalie, and I will be with you every first episode of the month for about 15 to 20 minutes on average, although today's episode is going to be slightly longer, exceptionally. In between episodes, if you have questions about the content, you can find me at b-mindful.com, or you may join Les Crowder himself and I every Thursday, 5 p.m. to 6 p.m. Central U.S. time for our weekly chat with the Mindful Beekeepers, which is a one-hour beekeeping Q&A where we answer your questions live. So what is the Natural Beekeeping Corner? Well, every month, I'm going to take you by the hand and invite you to join me into the wonderful, mesmerizing, almost magical world of the honeybees and the superorganism, so that you can better plug into the nature of this amazing animal and maybe consider a more mindful, apicentric, which means bee-focused way to keep your bees. But first, um, let me tell you how I personally stumbled into what has turned out to be a lifelong passion. Well, uh, really an addiction, because, uh, you know, like many beekeepers, once you step into the world of the honeybees, uh, you find out really quickly uh, that you get addicted. So let me tell you how that happened to me so you can better understand my natural approach to beekeeping. Many years ago, when I was about eight years old, I wrote a report about honeybees and how they use dances to communicate complex messages to their nestmates. So to the shy, curious little girl that I was, uh, it was intriguing and brilliant at the same time. A smart brilliant in the figurative sense of the way uh, of the word, but also a brilliant, but also brilliant in a way that left a luminous, shiny and warm impression on me, uh, which always stayed with me. Fast forward many years, and in 2014, I got a worry hive for Christmas, and a package of bees was on the way for the following spring. Good survivor stock, local to my area, meaning untreated and resilient bees. And at the time, after leaving corporate, I had started a French conversation school to feed my passion for languages and for teaching. I was so busy doing that, that after installing them in the spring, I really never got back into the hive, didn't feed it, and certainly never treated it. I just peeked through the window once in a while, watching them work throughout the seasons. I really enjoyed that. But I did notice that it kept thriving year to year, and that it grew into a beautiful large colony, still thriving six years later. So a couple of years after I got that hive, I started attending local beekeeping clubs around Austin. But like a lot of beekeeping clubs around the country, they heavily promoted treatments. And they were telling me that if I didn't treat my bees, they would die, which really didn't make any logical sense to me. First, because I knew from experience that it wasn't true, um, but also because I couldn't wrap my head around pouring pesticides and sexicides into a colony of insects to make it better. So I did my research, I read and I informed myself and realized that it was not just me, that plenty of beekeepers around were keeping bees 
naturally without any treatments, some for many years and even some on a large scale. So it kind of comforted me into what my instinct was telling me. So being who I am, what I did is I created the Hayes County Beekeepers Association as a treatment-free alternative source of information for local beekeepers. And then I started sharing that um, the information that I had and what scientific research I had found that was supporting my instinct so that others could learn from it. So as a professional educator with a passion for teaching natural treatment-free beekeeping to people of all backgrounds, I then decided to create Be Mindful, uh, which is really a natural beekeeping school and consulting company. We do sell some honey. We have sold some bees, although we're not doing it right now. But mostly we are a beekeeping school and we do ag exemptions and things like that. So mostly consulting. I had taken a couple of classes with Les Crowder, who is a world-renowned expert on uh, natural beekeeping and on Taba hives. And for those of you who don't know him, he is the author of the book Tabar Beekeeping, Organic Practices for Honeybee Health. And he's been keeping bees uh, for over 50 years and naturally for over 30 years. He started as a commercial, uh, working for a commercial beekeeper that was treating, but very quickly moved over to natural beekeeping as well. And he's been doing that for over 30 years. So we became friends and now I have the immense privilege to be working with him at Be Mindful, teaching many of his and our techniques to be successful raising bees naturally, especially when it comes to top bar hives. That's uh, our favorite type of hives. And those techniques, by the way, are backed up by empirical evidence, our own experience, and by scientific research. So to best define natural slash treatment-free beekeeping, let's talk first about what it's not, at least in our experience. It is not hands-off beekeeping. You do have to uh, take care of those bees and make sure that they are uh, thriving, um, giving them the best chances to do that on their own. It is not hippies that do let their bees die or swarm uh, irresponsibly. That, I hear that a lot, and that's not what it is. Uh, it's also not, mostly not commercial beekeeping, because it has different goals from backyard beekeepers and different requirements. Although there are treatment for commercial beekeepers out there. So it's totally not an impossible thing to do as a commercial beekeeper. What it is though, it is informed beekeeping that puts the well-being of the bees before the pocket of the beekeeper. Uh, a lot of the sources of trouble when you do beekeeping is when you're trying to maximize production of honey or bees and you push them so hard that uh, it makes it unsustainable. And that's at that point, just like the cows on the feedlots, that you have to start medicating them because it's too intensive and not really bee-focused. The other thing that it is, it's uh, being more plugged in into and knowledgeable of the nature of the honeybees. And it is also keeping the bigger picture, the superorganism, and all these its interconnections and the unintended consequences of basically uh, interfering with the mechanisms of the superorganism in mind for a more holistic and sustainable approach to beekeeping. So how does that work? Well, it works by getting educated first and knowledgeable enough to become a better beekeeper. And you can do that through reading. You can do that through listening to this podcast. You can do that through uh, attending um, beekeeping clubs that are not promoting treatments heavily. You can do that by following a master beekeeper program. 
and kind of take the content that's valuable to you and leave on the side the information that they're pushing about treatments. The other thing that makes it work is by relying on the scientific principles of the IPM pyramid. And IPM stands for Integrated Pest Management. And it's usually represented by a pyramid of interventions from the uh, most common, most frequent ones that you can take to give the bees a better chance of success. And at the top of that pyramid, just like with the food pyramid, are the interventions that you should use the least amount possible and if possible, avoid. So we'll be talking a lot about the IPM pyramid on this segment, but I don't want to dive into it quite yet. In a sense, it's a series of interventions and strategies that have been scientifically proven to uh, improve colony health and chances of success. It also works by tuning more intimately into the nature of bees and the superorganism, like I mentioned. So now let's talk about seasonal advice in the context of natural beekeeping. This is, uh, we are at the end of February. Uh, by the time you hear this, we might be first week of March. And first, a bit of disclaimer. All beekeeping is entirely local, and you need to keep that in mind in everything I or other beekeepers say. And all seasonal management is going to be intimately linked to your specific local climate, especially that time just at the end of the winter dearth, the, when there's no food and it's cold, uh, and at the end of the cold weather. So all beekeeping also depends on your degree of experience and on your goals as a beekeeper. The famous say is you can ask um, 10 beekeepers one question and you're going to get 15 answers. That's also something to keep in mind. So this advice is mine and uh, in, in great parts that of Les Crowder because I've been following his mentoring. But not everybody does it the same way. So just like my good friend John, I live basically in Austin, Texas, southwest of Austin. So keep that in mind and adapt all the advice that you get to your own local seasons uh, and weather. So here in Austin, as a general rule, comes February and the weather warms up. I know, I know. <laughs> uh, I hear you chuckle a little bit over there uh, after that crazy cold week we just had that basically made worldwide news. Uh, but that's usually what happens. The weather warms up and the bees get out of their winter mode. However, there's still not much nectar and the bees will in some cases have gone through a lot of their resources and there could still be some hard freezes here and there uh, before the nectar flow finally hits. So here's what we recommend at this time of the year. When it comes to new colonies, you can catch them or you can buy them, basically. So if you have not done so already, you may Try your hand at setting up swarm traps around and try to catch some wild or feral bees to get started uh, to increase your numbers or replace your losses that way. With a bit of luck, those will come from unmanaged colonies, whether wild or feral that have not been treated, or from managed colonies, but that have not been treated. As long as they have made it through the winter, those bees will therefore be survivors and should be in theory fairly resilient and locally adapted. Worst case scenario, you'll catch a swarm from a treated colony. And if it doesn't do well, you can let it grow and see what it does. And if it doesn't do well for you without its routine dose of treatments to keep it alive, then you can always requeen it uh, with local survivor untreated genetics. That's going to kind of change the makeup of that colony accordingly. 
You may use, for example, things like those eight-gallon pulp pots, those fiber pots that the gardening centers may have or carry, uh, or any used hive boxes that smells like a beehive. And if not, and or you can increase your chances by baiting them with any one or more things like old brood comb. Uh, the bees, it makes it smell like home. Uh, it, sm it smells like a beehive. Lemongrass oil, which um, for some reason attracts them. Maybe something about smelling slightly like queen pheromones. Propolis spray, you can freeze propolis and uh, that makes it brittle. So you can break it into powder and dissolve it into 90 proof alcohol. Put it in a spray bottle uh, after shaking it really good. And spray that mix onto the inside of the bait hive that you have. And the alcohol will evaporate and you'll be left with the propolis all over the inside of that hive, uh, that box. That's going to make it smell good as well. Or if you don't have any of that, if uh, you know a beekeeper that has old wax, you can take it and melt it and kind of paint that around on the inside of the box. Uh, just know that you can't use your good pots and pans. They're going to be forever covered in wax. So use something that you don't care about. Once you're setting up those uh, swarm traps, make sure they're shielded from the rain, that they don't contain any food. The honeybees will, want, will not want to move in into a box that's basically a restaurant for them. They will not do it. So don't put any honey, don't put any pollen, don't put any of that stuff. And just have small, preferably round entrances. So that's for the swarm traps. Alternatively, if you don't want to take that chance and it's kind of like a... Uh, Russian roulette. You might be lucky, you might not. If you want to be sure to get bees, you may consider buying bees, uh, whether packages or nukes, uh, like John has probably already mentioned on the show before. I think I've heard that before. So just make sure that if you buy bees, that they are local survivor and treated stock. Again, I'm going to say that a lot. <laughs> and uh, preferably not it Italian treated stock from out of state. <laughs> Uh, that's probably not going to do well for you if you're not going to treat them. So that's quite important if you want to be a successful natural beekeeper. Besides, whether you treat or not, those will do better. This local survivor untreated stock will do better uh, than treated bees no matter what. But make sure to place your orders for bees earlier than later. At this time of the year in Texas, we're at or nearing being sold out. Due to the higher demand and the shorter supply for local survivor stock, they sell out quicker usually than treated bees. Yes, you may find out that they can be more expensive, but like everything else, you get what you pay for. So less than I, if you don't know where to start or where to find a supplier of local survivor stock in North America or wherever you are in North America, We have a map of suppliers that we have uh, put together. It, I'm sure, is not complete and doesn't list everybody. It's only as good as uh, the crowdsourcing is to populate it. So what it can do is provide you, if you zoom on that map, you can find somebody that's in your local area. And at that point, if you don't have somebody that's close, you can find somebody that's in the state uh, that you are in or And then you can contact those people and they might be able to point you in the right direction. By the way, if you know somebody or are somebody that should be listed on that map, just fill in the form and we'll add you or them after we've done some vetting to be sure that that's legit. 
And the other thing that you can do at this time of the year is look into your equipment and your apiaries and make sure they're ready for the season. So first, make sure to fix or repair old equipment so there's no cracks and crevices. Believe it or not, that's one of the IPM strategies at the mechanical intervention level that prevents the intrusion of pests and rubbers and helps keeping the, the stress low on the colony. Make sure also you do have a good source of water set up for your colonies before the season so that they don't have to expend unnecessary energy foraging for water further out. And again, that's to decrease the stress on the colony and to maximize their chances of success. If the weather is warm enough, it's okay to go through a quick inventory of your uh, existing colonies and do a proof of life. And when I say quick, I mean just kind of like make sure you got house bees and don't go through the brood's nest and don't stay in there for too long. So for lengths, you can lift up the outer cover. So remove the uh, outer cover and look through the inner cover hole and make sure that there's bees kind of like, you know, uh, calm and, and just busy doing their thing and they're not running all over the place crazy and it doesn't look like they're being robbed. Don't crack the propolis seals if you can avoid it, unless the colony seems to be dead and you really need to go deeper in there. Preserving that propolis seal, by the way, is another IPM strategy at the mechanical level, and that helps them stay healthier longer. For taba hives, same thing, although because you're going in from the back of the hive, you can go a little further and check through the honeycombs and all the way up to the edge of the brood's nest for brood rearing signs because you won't be exposing the brood's nest otherwise so it's fine to do so. By the way not going through the brood's nest and not exposing it is another important IPM strategy and it's much easier to implement in top bar hives because of that horizontal management than in vertical beekeeping where um, to get to look at the bird's nests, you need to remove the entire inner cover and potentially other boxes on top to check on the brood. The other thing we would recommend is to not look for your queens. At this time of the year, that would be too disrupting for the colony uh, with no clear benefit. As a matter of fact, we very rarely look for our queens unless we're doing something very specific. For example, queen rearing or splitting or requeening. Instead, what we do is we look for signs of her presence, keeping in mind the seasons. So in periods of expansion, finding young brood at the edge of the nest is a good sign. Just like uh, eggs, small young larvae, potentially some cat brood in there as well. This is usually a good sign that she's there, she's laying, and everything looks fine. In periods of contraction, when they're, they're not really laying and they're losing numbers and preparing to contract for the winter... Calm, orderly, quiescent colony with house bees that are busy doing their thing will tell you that she's probably there providing cohesion through the ranks, right? And besides, at that time of the year, usually there's not much brood, so that's not really what's going to tell you that she's there. However, make notes of your findings in case you need to intervene and uh, you know when and where that's necessary. If you find dead outs during your uh, quick inspection... Just make sure to remove the combs. So usually if it's being robbed out, uh, chances are that's a dead out from the cold snaps. So at that point, you can go further in. And if you can confirm that the colony is de dead, frozen, has been robbed to death or has absconded, 
then at that point you can remove the combs that are left over in the box, shake off any bees that are on there live or potentially dead and freeze them for later use if you can, uh, if you have the space in your freezer. Uh, so that you decrease the chances of robbing on your remaining colonies. Because once a, a colony gets robbed out, then more colonies in the area have a higher chance of getting robbed out as well. The next thing you can do is a quick check on your resources, especially honey. So on Langs, a quick lift test in the back of the box should give you an idea of what's left. And in Taba hives, a quick look at the combs at the back of the bird's nest, where usually the honey is being stored, will do the same thing for you. If they still have food, we highly recommend you leave them, you live well enough alone. Why? It's because with beekeeping, less is more usually. And with natural beekeeping, the goal is to trust their nature and let them follow the natural cycles of expansion during flows and contraction during dearth, which allows, by the way, for brood breaks during the dearth that leads to longer lasting queens and fewer pests and pathogens. Those brood breaks do. As a matter of fact, uh, we would recommend not feeding your bees unless that's actually a true emergency to prevent starvation. So unless you're a commercial beekeeper prepping their bees off-season to take them to pollination contracts or rearing queens, or you're trying to artificially stimulate your numbers so you can harvest unnatural amounts of honey, artificial feeding is not needed and done on a regular basis, it can actually have disastrous consequences on your colonies. They might either brood up early, swarm prematurely, when no drones are available for the new queens to mate, and meanwhile your mated good queen is gone, or they might end up starving trying to get all that new brood alive to keep it all alive and warm enough through uh, the last cold spells of the season. So that leads to starvation usually. Now, if they look like they're dangerously low, at that point, you can provide some emergency feeding, usually in the form of either your own crystallized honey, which is by far the best option for them. Never grocery store honey, and preferably honey that you know where the source of. You can also feed them plain granulated sugar sprayed with a light mist of water, so that's like dry sugar feeding, uh, whether uh, Camp Mountain or uh, just you know, in the back of the hive, or if it's warmer than 60 Fahrenheit or about 15 Celsius, you can also consider feeding them some thick sugar syrup, two to one, two sugar to uh, one water, so that it's, you know, more concentrated, less moisture introduced into the hive until the nectar comes in. You need to do that inside the hive, not outside uh, for many reasons. We never feed pollen supplements, which by the way is completely artificial, because again, they push the bees to artificially and unnaturally brood up out of the season. Also, usually there's plenty of pollen available in the right season. So that's not usually needed. Whatever you do, only feed inside the hives like I was mentioning. Either between the inner cover and the outer cover with a spacer box in a Langstroth hive or with uh, tray feeders. I don't like the frame feeders personally, but that's a personal taste because I just don't want to have to crack that inner cover open and disrupt the bees to uh, pour that syrup in there. Plus, I find them unsanitary, but we'll go through that in a later episode. Or you can, in the top of hive, for example, you can do that in the back of the colony. However, if you have made sure to leave them with enough resources before the winter and have not taken too much of their honey when you harvested, then I, they should be fine on their own. 
barring any exceptional circumstances like the ones we had last week in Texas. And finally, if you're keeping bees in vertical hives, consider at this time of the year trying out tabar hives this coming season and uh, plan accordingly as they tend to be less stressful for the bees and less invasive to the bird's nest. So I, we would encourage you to give it a try. If you're interested, by the way, we have free plans so to make them, to build them yourself, easy and cheaply. Uh, and you can find those on our, on our website at b-mindful.com. We'll talk about those in more details in a later episode. Other things you might consider doing is plant wildflowers, bushes, and trees to provide more natural forage throughout the season. So trees will give them better uh, bang for their buck, but they take longer to grow. And bushes uh, will also do a pretty good job for the bees and be faster to grow. And wildflowers will be great because you'll have a great quantity of them, but they're not as uh, efficient at feeding bees as the bushes and the trees are. However, they grow a lot faster. So ask your local ag extensions or local beekeepers in the area what you should be planting for the bees specific to your area. And also familiarize yourself with uh, what kind of trees uh, would grow best, understanding that they're the slowest, but you know, again, provides uh, the most bang for their bucks. And for best results, plant all three types and make sure that it covers the entire season. That's it. At this point, leave them alone for now. And remember the golden rule uh, in natural beekeeping, and it should actually be the golden rule in all beekeeping, is that less is usually more with beekeeping. And don't go through the entire hive at this time because it's too early. Once it gets warmer and nectar starts flowing, it'll be time to do a full colony inspection, assess resources and queen status, look at things like brood patterns, and maybe do some swarm management. In the meantime, I hope you have enjoyed this first real, albeit a bit longer than usual, <laughs> natural beekeeping corner, and that you will tune in to next month's episode when we will talk into more details about actual integrated pest management strategies to help you increase your chances of success in your sustainable natural beekeeping journey. So send me any questions you may have by contacting me through b-mindful.com and I will do my best to address them as I go. And if I don't have the answers, then I'm sure Les will have them. So in the meantime, for the love of the bees, be mindful. Be good. Thanks. Talk to you later. <laughs> and there you have it, everybody. Your first official natural beekeeping corner. Thank you so much, Natalie, for going through and doing that with us. That is awesome. Everybody, you can look forward to your next natural beekeeping corner, which will be coming up the first Monday of every month. So the first Monday in April will be the next one. And until then, I think... Uh, that does it for us today, sir. Yeah, let's, let's get out of here and uh, we'll figure it all out. And I'm probably going to go and, and and sit out by one of the hives and just sit there and talk to me. I, I've almost got it down where I go, and they fly right up in front of me and they do figurates around my eyes. So I'm sitting there thinking, oh, they know me now. So hey, I'm all right. Oh yeah, let me know how that uh, how that works for you. <laughs> Stay warm, fix the pipes. Uh, hope 
hope you got electricity. There's many of our uh, people that's in apartments here in Austin that are still froze. So, or no, they're busted. They got the water turned off. I hope everybody is listening to us. The family's listening to us. You have water and electrics and the bees are healthy. All right, everybody. Everybody be good, be safe, and we'll talk to you next week. (laughs) Bye-bye. Bye. It's time for our guys to buzz off. But don't fret. The Hive Jive journey continues with new episodes Mondays every month. Until then, you can follow along with the guys on Facebook and Instagram at The Hive Jive. Thanks for listening, and be safe out there.